Amen, and good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor here at Pulpit Rock. Um, isn't it fascinating with worship? Worship is ultimately about God and giving him uh, the glory that he deserves, but there's something about it when we gather together and do it together that our restless hearts find that home that we've been longing for. I love worshiping with you people. Thanks for being here today. Um, We're going to launch a new series, sermon series for the summer today, and we are really excited about it, so I thought we'd start with a game. Doesn't that sound fun? Let's play a game. Uh, this is not just a game like, uh, you know, for bragging rights or something like that. This is actually a game where you could win a prize. What I have here in my hand is a $20 Chick-fil-A gift card. It is totally worthless to you today, but tomorrow you will be rich with Christian chicken. So that's um, something to look forward to. And to, to win this gift card, all you have to do is get closest to the right answer for a question. Here's the question. How many Christian denominations exist in the world today? Now, caveats, don't yell out your answer just yet. If you are in the first service, you are disqualified from playing, okay? So did some of you who snuck back in, um, just to get the gift card, just stop. Don't, that, you, you don't need it. Um, secondly, my source is Christianity Today. So if you are a reader, an avid reader of Christianity Today, you have a leg up on the competition. And lastly, this is not The Price is Right. I don't want any guesses of $1. You can go over. We're just looking for the closest uh, number to the right answer, how many Christian denominations exist in the world today, and the closest gets the gift card. Shout it out. What do you think? I hear, okay, I heard a lot. What? 400. We heard 400 here. This is like uh, <laughs> 33,000. Okay. 2,200. 87? Is that... Okay, 87. 86. 86 is the worst guess. You need to go 88. Have you never seen The Price is Right? Uh, 25? Did I hear? 45. Okay. One million. Wow, that is a bold guess. I heard 72. I heard 800. 19,000. 150. 1,200. 146. Okay. Now you're in luck because I have kept all of these numbers correct in my head. <laughs> 1,500. Okay. Any last minute? This is like the lamest auction ever. <laughs> any last minute? No, no, no Googling. Okay. You're disqualified. So uh, let me give you the answer and announce the winner. The correct answer how many Christian denominations exist in the world today? 33,830. Um, and I feel like maybe there was some sort of a, a like secret knowledge. If you're married to a staff member, I don't know if you're eligible, but nevertheless, Jason Garrett is the winner. Yeah. Hey, what? Yeah. Hey, who was number two? Yeah. I don't know. What are you doing for lunch tomorrow? Right? No, you don't have to take me. Okay. Let's go to lunch. Okay. So why are we bringing this up? Well, we're starting this new series. We're calling it Table Manners for Flawed People. And here is the idea behind it. When we come to Jesus, Jesus welcomes us with 
open arms, and he, we find in him the forgiveness and the love and the peace that we've always longed for. We are freed from sin and shame. He welcomes us into his kingdom. At one point, he describes that as the banquet of the king, like his kingdom is this banquet, and he pulls out a chair for us, and he says, I've been waiting for you. Sit down, have a seat. We love that metaphor at Pulpit Rock of the table, uh, only here's the problem. At the table... It is not just you and Jesus, right? It is not a date. It's not like you and Jesus in a quiet candlelit table for two in the corner of a restaurant. No, it is a banquet table. It is rowdy. It is raucous. It is full of people. And the problem occurs when we sit down at the table with Jesus and we discover that we are sitting at the table with all sorts of unsavory characters, People we don't like, people we don't understand, people that honestly we don't really even want to eat with. And so what we do is we get up from the table and we go and we find a new table or maybe we start our own table and that has happened 33,830 times. It's a staggering number. And I know it feels like a lot, but I promise you there is somebody out there who thinks, you know, really the problem in the kingdom of God and all the problems of our world, it would just be so much better if we had 33,831, right? That's going to fix it. Let's have one more. Now, I, please hear me on this. I'm not anti-denominations. I think there are plenty of times when God was in the launching of a new expression of his kingdom. I'm not sure that all 33,830 of those would qualify, but certainly some of them do. But we have to see this problem, and I think we have to, as Christians, be a little bit self-aware. We have this habit, as Christians, of not getting along. Because while that number, it represents different organizations within Christianity, uh, you know, all of us as individuals have a tendency to do this. And if we started lumping those in there, that number would be in the millions or maybe even the billions of people who look across the table and say, well, I'm not going to worship with someone like that. And so they get up and they move on. It's not always bad, but let's be honest. The watching world sees it, don't they? And I think when the watching world sees this tendency that we have as Christians to not get along, I wonder if they don't conclude, man, that Jesus y'all have sure must be small. He's not even big enough to keep you together. I mean, y'all fight as much as the rest of us. Maybe this Jesus you follow just isn't all that powerful. You know, the really beautiful thing of the kingdom is that at the table, there's all these incredibly different people sitting together. That's what Jesus does, is he brings us all together, and we have nothing in common, but we're sitting at the table, and it's so beautiful. You know what the most challenging part of the kingdom is? Is that there's all these different people sitting at the table, and Jesus brings all these people who have nothing in common, and he sits them at the same table. And then we have to get along and figure it out. And the problem is we're sitting with people who are nothing like us. They're motivated differently than us. They're flawed in different ways. They value things that we don't value. They view the world through a different set of lenses. And what we all have as humans is this tendency to prefer people who are like us, right? Our tendency is to prefer, prefer people who think like us, people who value what we value, people who like to sin in all the same ways we like to sin. And yet God... 
in his infinite wisdom, thought it would be a great idea to bring all of us different people to the same table. You know what I'm absolutely obsessed with as I get older in life? Um, It's this question that is filling my mind lately. How do we find a way to stay together and love each other deeply when it gets hard? Because it always gets hard, right? So how do we find a way to not eject, but to stay together? Is there a way for incredibly flawed people like us to sit at the same table and not constantly get up and storm off and start our own thing? Maybe we just need to work a little bit on our table manners. At one point, Jesus said this, and this should give us all pause. He said, this will be the metric, the measuring stick that will reveal to people who you are following. He said, a new command I give you, love one another, is I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We have to get better at sticking together, I think, as believers, because I think the watching world sees it, and it matters what they see. So here's what I thought we would do this summer. This summer, we're going to look at nine different characters from the Bible. These are people who were all a part of God's kingdom, so they're all people who sat at the table. And each week, we're going to learn from these characters, and we're going to add a new person. By the end of the summer, this table is going to be full with these nine characters. All nine of these people are really different. They are intentionally different. They value different things. They think differently. They struggle with different things. Some of them knew each other in the Bible. Some of them were separated by hundreds of years and never met. Um, But we're going to see ourselves in some of these characters, and we're going to see some of the people that we might be connected with in the kingdom of God in some of these characters. Uh, But they're also different. We're going to wonder together, is there a way for people who are so different to sit at the same table and love each other deeply, even when those differences create conflict and problems and everything else? And if there is a way, we need to find it by God's help. Um, There's this great trend in our society that kind of goes with this series or is connected to what we're doing uh, this summer. It's built around just this idea of understanding yourself, right? And there's all these tools that are popular these days, stuff like uh, the Myers-Briggs inventory, personality inventory, or things like you may have tried Strength Finders, which reveals what you're good at, what you struggle with. Um, The Enneagram is one that I really like. It's just these tools to help you understand yourself. Here's what we believe about discipleship. Understanding ourselves is a necessary part of spiritual transformation. We sit at the table with Jesus, and one of the things that he does is he says, let me clue you into who I created you to be, and we need to understand ourselves. But it also is a necessary part of love that we have to understand each other so that we can learn to love each other in the way that they were created by God. I think the original tool for that sort of self-discovery was, of course, the Bible. Um, Specifically, the Bible, it records these unfiltered stories about people's journey with God, and we can learn so much from them. For thousands of years, that has been kind of the way that we as believers have learned about ourselves, as we've read about the journey of these people in the Bible, and we've learned from them. So all nine of these characters, they they have a lot to teach us, and and you'll note this if you're a fan of this. uh, They kind of line up with the Enneagram, so if you know your number, and you're into the nine numbers of the Enneagram, that'll be relevant to you. If you don't know what that is and you want to know what the Enneagram is, in our resource center out there, we have a spotlight resource. It is this book, The Road Back to You, which is kind of a uh, primer on the Enneagram. Um, If you are confused by all the words that I just said in the last 20 seconds, don't worry about it. We're not going to get too into that stuff. Um, 
the point is this. We want to immerse ourselves in these biblical characters and try to get some vision for why God thought it was a good idea to bring them to the table and how do we now get along together. Let's talk about our first character. Are you excited? I feel like there should be a drum roll, but we don't even have the drums up here, so I'm, yeah. Hey, one person, that's awesome. Um, our first character, this is supposed to be like a big reveal, but I feel like it's, you're looking at me like it's not. It's in the bulletin, isn't it? Thank you, yes. We shouldn't have put it in the bulletin. So our first character is Peter. So we're going to put Peter right there on his chair. I don't know if that's the chair Peter would choose, but we're going to pretend Peter is right there, and he's all alone right now. It is a date. It's just Jesus and Peter. But by the end of the summer, we're going to have this table full with biblical characters. Uh, you may know this about Peter. Peter's actual name was Simon. That was his name growing up, and we're first introduced to him in the Gospels. He's in all four Gospels and in Acts and also wrote two letters in the Bible. Uh, he was a small business owner. He started a business with his brother. It was a fishing business, and he went in with the, the Zebedee brothers, uh, James and John. So it was Peter, Andrew, his brother, and then James and John. They're all fishing together, and Jesus sees him, and he's like, come follow me, and they drop everything, and they just go follow him. Do you see up there uh, that, wor that phrase, at once? Uh, your Bible might say immediately, uh, but th that was like an important word in Peter's life. At once sums up a lot about Peter. He was the sort of guy who did stuff. His life was characterized by action. He was a guy who always said yes. Now, we call him Peter, not Simon, because when Jesus met him, like the first thing he did was he changed his name. Uh, Peter comes from the Greek word for rock, and so Jesus looks at him, and like in just a few minutes, he's like, your name's Rock. And the Bible doesn't really explain why he went with that. I don't know if it was like a physical characteristic or just personality trait, but this nickname that Jesus gives him of Rock becomes kind of a defining characteristic of Peter's life. He becomes this foundational cornerstone for the early church. And a lot of what we understand about church was kind of built on the ministry of Peter. Jesus even says to him at one point, he says, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. And he is kind of this play on words with his nickname that he gave him. Peter was obviously a leader, uh, but that does not mean that he was always in charge. He was not always in charge. Sometimes other disciples were more in uh, the, the driver's seat. But he was a leader in the sense that he would often be the one who went first, um, a few examples of that. There's this great scene in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus takes all the disciples to this Gentile area and he corners them and he's like, hey, who, who do you think I am? Um, and it's this incredible moment. And Peter, of course, is like the first to talk. He's right on it. And he, he blurts out the answer and he's actually right. And, P, and Jesus commends him for it. Or there's this moment where they're in a boat and uh, it's just the disciples that left Jesus behind and the wind and the waves come and it's a storm and they're all kind of freaked out. And then they get even more freaked out because Jesus starts walking by the boat and he's walking on the water and everyone is naturally really scared by that. Uh, but Peter recovers like really quick and he throws out this idea to Jesus. He says, hey, if it's really you, can I do this too? And that's kind of Peter. He's always wanting to do stuff. It doesn't work out the way that he hoped. Um, but he, you have to respect the effort because Peter was a guy who always had ideas. Uh, like that one time, 
This is one of my favorite scenes of Peter. Jesus is up on the mountain, and the Bible tells us that like the, like the veil is pulled back, and Jesus' glory shines through. And we don't totally know what that means, but he's the Son of God. And so there's something about him that is transfigured in that moment, and everyone sees his glory. And then, uh, to make it even cooler, Moses and Elijah appear, and those guys have been dead for a few hundred years. And so there's Jesus, like full glory, and he's carrying on a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Who knows what those three were talking about? And Peter, perfect timing Peter, just interrupts and he throws out what he thinks is a brilliant idea. Uh, And I can't prove this, but I think there were two moments where Jesus rolled his eyes in the Bible and this was one of them, right? (laughs) I am positive. He looked at Moses and Elijah and he's like, do you see what I'm working with here, you know? Um, but maybe that's what they were talking about. Maybe they were just commiserating over how uh, lame Peter was. I don't know. But anyhow, uh, Peter was that guy. He just was always, yes, he was in there. He was first. He loved an adventure. He's always stepping into stuff. And we see that God really uses this after Jesus dies and, and is risen from the dead and the early church begins. Uh, it, it's Peter who is the first to speak to the crowd. It's Peter who gives the first gospel message after Jesus ascends. He's walking up the temple steps. He sees this crippled man asking for money, and in front of everyone, he just steps into the situation, and he heals him in the name of Jesus, who just two months before was crucified in that very city, and it blows everyone away, and he gives kind of this gospel presentation to everyone. He is a guy who said yes He had a lot of ideas. I think he just, he seems to love the adventure of following Jesus. I think that was a theme in his life. I think he found in Jesus a sort of freedom that he didn't find in the other religious leaders. That's why he dropped everything and followed him. If you followed the Enneagram, um, I think Peter was an Enneagram 7. uh, We we don't know. I'm speculating. But I think he was a 7. I am a 7. That's my Enneagram number so you can get the book and, you know, life hack me and my soul. But uh, anyway, that's what I am. And I just, there's things about Peter that I recognize. There's this craving of adventure and this, uh, this freedom that I see in Peter, and I relate to that. You know, as great as it was, and as much fun as it seemed to be, it also was his flaw, wasn't it? This was like his strength that got way out of balance, and I relate to that too. What's interesting about Peter is he's a foundational uh, part of, of the early church, but we also know a lot about his failures, and the Bible tells us all about this. And if there's like a thread that we could tie all of these mistakes Peter makes together, I think it has something to do with the way he's always trying to avoid negative stuff. Jesus says to him, you know, I have to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. And Peter, who believes at this point that Jesus is the only son of God, the Messiah, he rebukes him like strongly. He's like, no, that's not going to happen, which was not a smart thing to do. Um, but he wanted to keep it going. He, he, Jesus was talking about this pain and this suffering. And I don't think Peter liked the idea that pain was going to be a part of God's plan for redemption. Uh, also not smart, remember when they came to arrest Jesus and Peter pulls out a sword? I don't know where he got a sword, but he pulls out a sword and he cuts off this guy's ear. It's like, we're, they're never going to take us. And now remember, this is the moment before Jesus is about to go on trial and be whipped and be crucified and suffer mightily. And in that moment, Peter does this thing. And I'm sure this is the second time Jesus rolls his eyes and he's like, I'll get it, you know. 
And he picks up and he has to heal the guy's ear that Peter just cut off. I mean, it, it was this desperate attempt to avoid the pain and to avoid the cross. And I think that was a huge part of Peter's life. We see that also, of course, when he follows Jesus after they arrest him. Um, and they, they corner him and they say, don't you know this guy? You know Jesus. We've seen you with this guy. And what does Peter do? He lies because he doesn't have a choice. This time, he doesn't want them to take him. And so he lies to get out of it, and he denies his closest friend and his Savior. See, I think God created Peter in this way where he loved, like, adventure and freedom. He loved to say yes. He loved to do stuff. But when things go badly, instead of walking through it, instead of pressing into it and finding God in the struggle, he tries to escape. I think Jesus knew this about Peter. Um, he, he knew him well. And, and you see the way he interacts with him is, is really unique. That right after uh, Jesus dies and he's risen from the dead, and he, he encounters Peter on a beach. And he begins to address this moment where Peter denied him. And he tells him something. He, he kind of restores him to ministry, but then he tells him something about the end of his life. And it's something that you've got to respect for a guy like Peter would have probably been the worst thing he could have heard, but was absolutely the thing he needed to hear in that moment. Jesus pulls him aside and he says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. I think Peter's like, yeah, that's what I love. I love doing what I want to do. Jesus says, but when you're old, You'll stretch out your hand, someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He's talking about the end of Peter's life, he's talking about his death, and he frames it this way, that you're not going to have any choice. You're not going to have any freedom, you're not going to be able to run from it, you're not going to be able to escape it, you're going to have to face it, and this time you're going to face it with God, and he's going to glorify God in that moment in a way that he wasn't ever able to when he denied Jesus. I think that was a perfect thing to say to Peter. And you see this in his life, that I think that conversation, it echoed forward into the way that he led in the early church and into the things he wrote. Here's what we need to understand about God's table. God looks at this banquet table of the kingdom of God, uh, and he invites people like Peter. He, he pulls out a chair for him and says, hey, sit down. I would love to have you here. Some of you may be like that. Good news. God wants you at his table. You may be the sort of person who says yes. That's just your bias in life. You have a lot of ideas right now. You're not even listening to me because you're so excited about the next thing that you're going to do, the next adventure or the next opportunity. If you were in that boat, you would be out there on the water with Jesus. That would be your dream. This idea of being trapped or being caught in painful stuff, it's like the worst thing you could imagine. And you may find in your life that you're always trying to organize your life so you don't have to experience that stuff. Do you relate to Peter? I really do. Like, this is me. Um, I, I love experiences, ideas, adventure. I love that stuff. And I hate negative emotions. I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but when I start to feel like a negative emotion, I, like, I try to think my way out of it. Like, I just have this mental gymnastics thing where I'm trying to think my way out of bad feelings all the time. And so it's really hard for me, and I think it was hard for Peter, to just accept this truth, that pain is a part of following Jesus. It is. And there is no way to avoid it. 
Pain is going to be a part of being a Christ follower. It's hard to accept for someone like me. I think that's what Jesus was trying to say to Peter on that beach. God takes someone like Peter and he sits him at the table, someone who loves freedom and adventure. And if you're part of the kingdom, I, I think you need to understand that also part of the kingdom are people like this. Here's what I think it may feel like if you're sitting at the table with a Peter. Um, like if Peter's here at Pulver Rock Church, which he is, uh, this is what you'll notice. I think it's a lot of fun. People like Peter want church to be fun and forward-moving. Uh, people like Peter always have an idea. The downside of that, though, is people like Peter tend to move on to what's next a little too quickly. And that might frustrate you at times. Uh, people like Peter tend to be optimistic. That's a great quality to have. Optimism is great. But what's really tough for someone wired like Peter is, is to face the hard parts of Jesus' mission. Uh, people like Peter, I think, tend to be optimistic in ways that ignore bad feelings, including their own, or they gloss over them, and that's not always wise. People like Peter tend to have a lot of ideas, and a percentage of them are good. <laughs> they tend to be overly committed sometimes to making their ideas work, and you may feel at times, especially if you're talking in the world of ideas, you may feel like Peter is not really listening to you. Uh, that's because he's not. Um, he most of the time was only barely listening to Jesus, and that's Jesus, right? And it's not because he doesn't love you. I just think people wired like Peter, sometimes they're thinking about the next thing, and they're not always focused in the present, and they struggle to be present sometimes for others. It comes out of this core fear, and I, I'm speculating here, but I think this was true of, of Peter, this core fear of getting trapped by the bad stuff getting trapped by the, the struggle. Um, and so they're constantly moving on to what's next. You know, really what people like Peter need, and I, I speak as someone who is like him, um, is it, kind of what Jesus gives us this picture of when he reinstates Peter. But we also see it in, in Peter's letters. He wrote two books of the Bible, First and Second Peter. Uh, and you see in those books, like this guy has walked with Jesus for a number of years and you start to see him talk about things that maybe in the gospels he would never have brought up. And in those, he has this verse that I think if you're an Enneagram 7, if that's who you are, this could be a life verse for you. It's 1 Peter 4, 19. And, and think about the man Peter, and then think about the life that he lived to be able to make this statement. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is what he missed multiple times in the Gospels with Jesus. But he says, listen, uh, it, it, when the hard stuff comes, because it's going to come, we have to lean into it. We have to find God into it. Our Creator is still faithful despite that suffering, and we have to find Him in it and continue doing the good that God has called us to. That's the only way for someone like Peter to really be healthy. You know, maybe a spiritual discipline that would go along with this if you find yourself in Peter, is just a discipline. We all need this in our life, and I think especially if you're wired this way, the discipline of solitude might be really important to you. We get this sense from Peter's life that he did a lot of stuff and he was always moving, but what he probably needed was to do nothing on purpose and to slow down a little bit in life. I actually think this is what Jesus was doing. We see Jesus withdraws a lot um, to be alone with his heavenly father. And you also see he keeps bringing some people with him. And one of the people that he keeps bringing is Peter. 
And I bet that this was not Peter's favorite moment with Jesus. He liked the healings and the preaching and all this fun stuff that they were doing. But I think Jesus was instructing him in solitude. As someone who's wired kind of like this, I, I have to force myself to do this, and I hate it every time. But there's something about just quieting my mind, sitting alone with God, just for me, because my mind is always going, meditating on the simplest truths is real important. Not, not big studies and all this sort of stuff, but just reducing it. Like that verse in the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. That was written for people like me, and I think it was written for people like Peter. And so I'll do that, I'll isolate myself, I'll, I'll, I'll be alone with God, and I'll be focusing on that verse for what is like hours, right? And then I look at my phone, and it's been six minutes. Like, what? This is, feels like time slows down in those moments, but there's something about pressing into God and finding Him in those moments that helps me to do what Peter's talking about when I feel like the suffering or the bad stuff is happening to find my Creator and continue doing good. This is true with all of us It'll be true with every character that we look like. There's like a tremendous upside to Peter. But there's also this dark side of who he is. And the challenge is if you're not like that, if you don't really relate to the upside and the dark side, how do you sit with someone like this, stay connected to them without constantly getting up and storming off because they're so frustrated and you don't understand them? Let me make two observations, and we'll make this observation with every character. Here's the first one, and we have to believe this deep in our hearts. We need people like Peter in our life and in our churches, right? We need people like this. Peter keeps us moving. Peter says yes to God. Peter has ideas about what the kingdom of God could be like if we just stepped into it. If we just leaned into it, people like Peter are always stretching us, and that's a good thing. And you may not like that stretching sometimes, but we need that stretching as the body of Christ, and we need people who can play that role here in the kingdom of God. But this is the other part you have to understand, is when people like Peter are frustrating you, when you just don't understand it, and you just feel like they're not focused or they're not present or whatever, you have to realize God also puts you in Peter's life because Peter needs you. Peter needs people who can love him in the midst of the things that maybe frustrate you about him. Like all of us, I think a lot of our weaknesses come out of the pain in our heart that we're trying to sort out or trying to ignore or trying to work through. And that was true for Peter. I think you can love someone like that by really telling them and leaning into this that God is going to take care of you even when it's hard. That's the fear that maybe Peter had is, uh, I, I don't know what to do. Let's avoid this thing because I'm not sure God will still be present in the midst of it. And so people like Peter need a lot of that encouragement, just that your, faith, your creator is faithful. Continue walking with him. I think that's on some level what we all need, right? People who appreciate us for who we are and people who make space for those broken parts of our hearts. So, this summer, what we're going to do is we're going to fill up this table with characters like Peter. Uh, and it's okay if you're looking at that and say, I don't, I don't understand anything you just said about that guy. That's okay. Uh, we're going to get to someone that maybe you will relate to this summer. But here's the dream, is all of us at the table together, understanding and appreciating these differences that God put in us. And when those differences make it hard and we want to just eject because we don't understand, why are you like that? Instead of ejecting, 
We're going to do the most countercultural, I think one of the most inhuman things ever, and we are going to learn to understand each other and understand and see each other's heart and make space for each other's flaws so that we can love each other really well, and especially when it gets hard. Can you imagine, um, like if we filled this table up with nine biblical characters, you could probably just pick any nine. Uh, We're picking on purpose people that are different, but regardless, if you just filled that table up with nine people, there would be tremendous potential for conflict and for misunderstanding and for frustration. I think this this is true of a table like that. No one sits at this table without getting frustrated, and I don't know if you've gathered that from church. Nobody is a part of church without getting frustrated at times because it's hard. But can you also imagine the incredible testimony that it would be to our world to see this table full of so many different people who deeply love each other despite that struggle, who deeply love each other in the face of those frustrations, and instead of pulling away, they press in and they say, well, help me understand. Why are you like that? What's going on inside of you? I want to learn about you and I want to reveal about myself so that we could actually stick. That would be something worth doing. And ultimately, I think that is God's dream for us. It's not our dream, maybe. I'd rather be at a table with people just like me. I'd rather be at a table with just a whole bunch of Peters. We'd have a good time. We wouldn't talk about anything awful. It'd be amazing. But God's dream is to put us at the table together with people who are nothing like us. And he said, when that works, everyone will know who you're following. Everyone will know. Hang with us this summer as we learn just how to stay together despite our differences. Let me pray over us. God, we just confess this. As a group, we confess to you that we prefer people who are like us. It's hard for us sometimes to value and to see value in people who are so different than us, God. And we confess that that is our weakness, that is our sin. We humbly ask you to restore that part of our soul that's able to see people with your eyes. Restore that part of our soul that's able to sit with people who are nothing like us and and appreciate them and make space for their hearts. We know that's what you dream for us. And God, I pray that we would dream it as deeply as you do and that we'd lean into it as a group. God, I thank you for this community. I thank you that sitting in these seats are people who are nothing like me. God, I know I need those people in my life and I'm thankful for them. Continue to knit us together, Lord. Amen.